Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavner here on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague Michael Dwyer. Today is Wednesday, the 6th of January. Michael, how have you been since we last talked? I'm very well, and I'd like to wish all our listeners a, a happy epiphany. Today is the day which in the East, in Orthodox Christianity, is celebrated as Christmas. So for all of our listeners in Russia and in the Orthodox East, a happy Christmas. But if anybody's curious, by the way, the reason that in Easter Christianity is because today is the day when the three wise men, the three magi, arrive at the uh, at the scene in Bethlehem. And therefore, this is the moment where Christ is revealed to the Gentiles. Previously, the incarnation had been revealed only to the people of uh, the promise the covenant, the, the Jewish people. But today is the day symbolically which re which recognises the day when Christ is revealed to the whole world and to the Gentiles, So, which is why it's celebrated Christmas. So there you go. Uh, yet another opportunity to teach taken. It would have been really helpful if you told me you were going to open with that so I could plan some sort of segue that would have linked in any way to what I now want to talk about. But I've got nothing. Well, you see, if you had been thinking, you could have said, and speaking of other good news from Russia... And you could have gone into the Russian vaccine story. I actually wanted to start by saying that uh, some of you may have seen it, but if not, the uh, Edinburgh Institute gripped and ISMI did a video on uh, SMEs, small businesses, and how they're dealing with COVID. I'm told it's very good. I can't say I think it's very good because self-praise is no praise. But if you're interested in how small and medium enterprises are doing in Ireland and also why those things are important to the wider community, I will include a link to the bottom of this. And please, if you do like it, do share it around. On that note, I'm told that I should start telling people that if they like these episodes, to please share them to people. And if they like Gript, please consider making a donation to Gript because money can be exchanged for goods and services. Indeed. And it's also part of the status thing, you know, because, you know, the more money we have, eventually we can go around pretending that we too are like News Talk FM. Yes, and then one day we'll be able to do a sort of Scrooge McDuck jump into a uh, vault full of gold, uh, breaking our spine in the process and uh, living our lives as some sort of Christopher Reeve style recluse. <laughs> That's something to look forward to. Anyway, there was something I said in the last episode that turned out to be wrong, so I want to, to deal with that. I said that the government would never start publishing vaccination numbers on a daily basis because to do so would merely highlight their own ineptitude. Nearly immediately after I said that, and possibly before the episode went live, Stephen Donnelly, who is the most forgettable health minister I think we've ever had, when I was trying to write down this on the note of things I want to talk about, I went Simon Harris, Simon Coveney, oh no wait, it's Stephen Donnelly. Yeah, I, I think I staggered Steve, si, Simon Simon Donnelly, which is almost the name of a guy who used to bowl fast medium for Australia around 30 years ago. But anyway, he is the, uh, he is the Minister for Health, apparently. He has said that he will release the vaccine numbers daily. Now, at one of the briefings, someone did ask the CMO if he knew when that would happen, and the CMO seemed confused and possibly slightly frightened by the idea. So presumably that will happen at some point. You see, not to be picky, you're saying that you were wrong. I, I would simply say you're not wrong yet. You know what? I think I thought about going down that route and saying they actually need to implement first. 
But I thought I would just I would just say it now so that in future, if they fail to do it, I can come back gloriously like the Phoenix and say, actually, all this time I was right. The only time I was wrong was when I doubted that I was right. <laughs> and that's always that's always a good that's always a good one to pull off. I thought I I thought I was wrong, but I wasn't wrong. I was right all that time. Yeah, you know, you gotta you gotta bring the crowd down just so the heights are even more impressive. Yeah, absolutely. 135,000 vaccines is now the target by the end of February, according to Michal Martin. 135,000 vaccinations, uh, vaccines, just to put that in perspective, would be less in, what, the seven to eight weeks left until the end of February uh, than Israel is doing per day. And they're getting faster. Yeah, I, I was having a conversation with somebody about this a couple of days ago. And somebody produced the figure 135,000 uh, within, they, they, they heard it on the radio, probably from the HSC, say, by the end of February. And I'd just been looking at the figures on... Um, Our world in data, is it? That's it, that's it, world in data. And also, I think, from the Jerusalem Post, which we always have a look at before we do these things, when we have a skirt around the world. And I think, is it five five days ago, Gary? They did, in Israel, 152,000 vaccinations. And I just want to, I want that to roll out there. I want people to take that in like a fine wine and roll it around in their little heads. In one day, Israel, with a population which is not massively bigger than ours, 152,000 vaccinations. We are hoping, planning, intending to carry out at the end of February, in over a period of two months, 135,000 vaccinations. Well, whoopity-doo. Yeah, I was looking, also looking at our world and data, and particularly the international comparisons for how we're doing with vaccine rollout. Uh, if not for the French and Latvia, we would, I think, be the slowest in Europe. Estonia? Estonia? Is Estonia below us? Estonia? Well, I don't know if it's below us. If... Um, now, what are we? What's our total at the moment? Yeah, per 100 people, I think we're on 0 0.04 or 0, sorry, 0 0.08. Yeah, the French are on 0 0.01. Now, actually, I may be, I, I'm probably being unfair on Estonia. Estonia is on fewer numbers in absolute, but probably is a population basis on is, 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 is probably doing better. I ran the rough maths and sort of went, if you assume, so the Israelis have been doing this for a couple of weeks, three weeks, I think. So if you assume we hit our target for the next three weeks, and I ran that number against the Israeli number, just to make it slightly more comparable, Michael, and it, it appears that the Israeli vaccine rollout is somewhere in the region of 69 times faster than the Irish rollout, which doesn't sound real. 69, 69 times faster. And to be, I wanted a quick correction for our Estonian friends, many of whom will be celebrating Orthodox Christmas <laughs> and therefore maybe have missed it. <laughs> the, the, my correction is actually Estonia is doing better. Estonia is on 0 0.24 corrected for population. Oh, fantastic. So that, that, sorry, that was actually um, 59 times faster than Ireland. Ah, well, no, that's not so bad. Only 59 times faster. Let's just say Latvia and France are below us. France has basically decided to stop and have a six-month citizen assembly about this to discuss it. Latvia, <laughs> Latvia 
they came out and uh, said that they had no clear plan for how to handle COVID-19 and sacked the health minister. No, I don't want to embarrass you on air, Gary, because you know I don't, I hate to do that. But I suspect you were looking at the Latvian numbers from yesterday. I may have been, Michael. Why? How have they increased? Because the, the numbers are just in for January the 5th. And Latvia is now on 0.15. Okay, so we're still ahead of France, though. We are, and tied with Lithuania. But we're ahead of France. Yes, France is still there on 0.01. Because, of course, I suppose, as we may mention later on, and we have in the past, I think France was probably banking on Sanofi. And Sanofi is not looking good. It's going to be at least, it looks like a year before Sanofi is in production. So the French, even so, they do have other stuff. I mean, it's hard to know. And the French are usually pretty good at this kind of thing. France is a big state. It's very well organized. They know where everybody is. They have lots of military and police and things. They're used to organizing things and keeping the population organized. I mean, it's a bit worrying when Italy is doing better than France and Spain, and Portugal, places like that. I mean, we don't have any data. We have no data for North Macedonia, I'm afraid. So that's a, that's a worry. Michal Martin has said up to 135,000. Up to 135,000 could be 20,000. It could be. Now, there isn't unanimity about that figure. I mean, uh, Simon Harris O'Donnell, the current Minister for Health, um, has said that the numbers are being boosted. He said we're going to 35,000. Now, if we were to hit 35,000 every week until the end of February, that would be, if there's seven or eight weeks, we're looking at about 280,000, which would be more than double what the Taoiseach is saying. So that seems unlikely unless we're going to do it for one week and then we're going to cut back even more. Then again, that would be almost what the Israelis would do in two days. Yeah. And you know the thing about the Israelis, just for more having more fun, constantly harping about these bloody Israelis, the Israelis are getting faster, not slower, not not not, plat- not plateauing, getting your actual faster. Since the Israelis started, I think they've gotten something like five times faster. They started, I think, the 21st of December. And they were up to, they were doing 2000, whatever, 2004 or 5 in a day. They are now just a touch under 15,000. No, no, I say a day, I mean per, uh, as a proportion of population, whatever that is for, is it 100 per 100 population? Whatever it is. So they're, I mean, and the graph is, is, is upward ticking. And by the way, just in case anybody's wondering, Israeli Palestinians are being vaccinated. There is no, I mean, there are people who have been saying, oh, they're not fine. And the Palestinian Authority was offered uh, access to vaccines, vaccines of vaccination by the Israeli state, and they refused and decided they would do their own thing. Health is one of the things which is reserved to the Palestinian Authority, as health is reserved to sovereign states within the EU. So Ireland, if they'd wanted to, could have bought its own vaccines. And the uh, the Palestinians have bought it from Russia. Wait, actually, here's the thing. The Taoiseach today said that 135,000 people will be vaccinated by the end of February. All right? There's seven and a half weeks left until the end of February. Okay. 
The initial target was 20,000. 20,000 by 7 is 140. Right. So that's less than the target. That's that. That's less than the incredibly bad target that everyone accepts is too little. Yeah, but Gary, you have to understand that this is a complicated, difficult, uh, logistical rollout problem. I mean, nobody knew this was going to happen. I mean, this is not something that everybody could thought, oh, well, this, 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 this is something we could plan for. Obviously, this has come as a surprise to us all that this is happening. Um, so there are all sorts of issues. There are paperwork issues. We know that the, <laughs> sorry, we know, for example, in the care homes, they have to fill out forms, which I think around 50 different pieces of information. This is this, the fun thing about doing this show is sometimes on a Sunday or, you know, Wednesday between Friday and you're sort of going, what will happen between these two shows? Because sometimes not a lot happens. But because the vaccine rollout was happening, we knew, we knew something would fuck up. So Monday, the vaccines are meant to go to nursing homes. They're meant to start going to nursing homes. That doesn't happen. They have now been delayed until Thursday. Now, the reason they didn't happen, according to the Irish Examiner, is that there were issues with the paperwork and the consent forms. So not with the vaccine supply, not with getting people to give the vaccine supply, with the paperwork. There are, well, according to reports um, in in the wider media, the paperwork, at least some of the paper, there is there is a form of some kind which involves around fifty different pieces of information, uh, things like name, address, PRSI number. I imagine your mother's maiden name, the the name of your first pet, and other clues for your passport. I don't know, fifty questions anyway. But more importantly and more substantially, there is the issue of consent because you're going to have a number of people in care homes whose ability to give consent may be impaired or questionable no i don't and it is also true um what i'm taking is and the, the the representatives that were and people in the department were talking about it said this is true so i believe that we do not have in this state the appropriate legislation to deal with this issue that they have in other states however Many moons ago, Gary, I briefly did a little bit of work with a political party in Ireland on a European election. Now, the thing about European election is you know exactly what the day of the election will be forever and for more because it takes place, it's every, it's, the date is set, and it's going to be in five years it'll be happening. This And what I was fascinated to discover was this particular political party, it was like they had been taken completely by surprise that there was going to be an election. They're running around like headless chickens. God, we have to get posters. Oh, we, we, we have to get printers. We have, oh. And it's a, the issue of consent is not like a, a surprise. In the, This is surely, they knew about this. What, this is not something that could not have been anticipated. When people sat down and said, okay, the first thing we're going to do when we get the vaccine is, we're going to go and we're going to do the most vulnerable group. So that's going to be, are there any issues there? Are there, what will that involve? Nope, nope, nobody put their hand up and said, well, consent maybe. No, that, that was a surprise. Here's, here's the thing, Michael. There are systems in place for that. And, and this, this has come up commonly. If, a patient in a nursing home if a qualified medical personnel is satisfied that that person does not have the faculty to consent cannot a qualified medical personnel 
can con- can put down that there is consent if the procedure is deemed to be in the best interest of that person. And you don't need to involve the family, and you don't need to involve a judge, and judges recognise that this happened, so it shouldn't be an issue. Yeah, but Gary, the problem there is just, that's when there is no capacity to give consent. The problem here is where the, where that is doubtful. And, and, and not, being, not being sarcastic, it quite correctly, we should not assume an incapacity to give consent. I mean, we're talking about, in this case, in the COVID issue, but generally it is important as a general principle that people's capacity to give consent it should be assumed unless it's otherwise it's otherwise obvious that 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 does that capacity does not exist so you we should respect the capacity the the the, the, the capacity issue and that's the problem here that there are people f- that it is not on the face of it obvious that they lack capacity but that there is a doubt that they have capacity we on principle do not give medicines to people who don't who who who, uh, who refuse it? We don't give people medicine against their will. So there that and that is a problem because if somebody says they don't want the vaccine, then you have to consider well, do they are they are do they have the capacity to fully understand what the nature of this thing is? And if they lack capacity, well, then you can give you can give the, you can give the medicine if it is in their best interest. You can give them the vaccination. But if they do have capacity, then you can't force them to be vaccinated. No one is saying anything about forcing them. If they don't have capacity and it's in their medical best interest, health worker can sign off on it. If they do have capacity and they say they don't want to consent, well then they don't want to consent and you don't vaccinate them. And the problem lies between those two cases that it will not always be obviously clear if a person does or doesn't have capacity. And that's what have to be that would have to be established. There has to be a mechanism for that. I think that, and it seems to me that that is not a problem which is new or specific to this vaccine. No, it's it's absolutely not. It's it's a standard part of care, and it's it's one that the HSE has numerous policies in place about and about how you determine capacity. And also, people, Michael, if these people are in nursing homes. This is not something unexpected. They've been dealing with these people. This information is on file. Probably literally on file, actually, knowing the HSA. Yes, literally on pieces of paper somewhere. Now, you know what, Gary? As bad as we are, it could be worse. Well, we don't know. It could Maybe it will be also here. Uh, it's not quite to the subject, but I don't know. Did you see the reporting in the United Kingdom where they were talking about getting extra people in to help out retired GPs and people in the medical background who aren't in, involved in, in in medicine at the moment. And there were people who wanted to volunteer to help with the vaccination program. And they were the, uh, the shall we say, the, the paperwork they had to fill out. So but that was fairly spectacular. Oh, yes, I'd like to help with the vaccine rollout. I'm a retired GP. Fantastic. Yeah. Have you completed any of these anti-bias modules? <laughs> My favourite was the, 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 how you completed the anti-radicalisation module. Because, you know, those GPs, Michael, they're just, they're just waiting to get back in there. <laughs> and in that 15-minute period between giving the vaccination and observing the person, that's the 15-minute that's the moment where they will take to just purge themselves of all of the horrible, racist, vile, bigotry and 
twist and turn the, the minds of these poor people, either one way, to the right or to the left or to Islamofascism or God yeah, knows you know, what. You, you go to a, a retired GP who you've left back in without proper safeguards, he gives you your vaccination and then tells you the microchip is in. And you're like, what? <laughs> yeah. The microchip is in and you've now we have now modified your DNA. I just feel that not a high risk. You know, it, it's obviously a risk because, as we know, retired GPs do tend to be politically radicalised. But in the context of the wider risk of the pandemic, you know, I think you make a balance and you say, you know what, we'll take that risk. I like what I like about this is, and I have a kind of admiration for this in Ireland, the absolute lack of any sense of urgency about this. But we had so much urgency to get to this point, and now we're just like, yeah, I mean, the people in the healthcare or in the healthcare facilities, probably the most likely to die. But like, what did you expect us to do? Fill out these forms beforehand? <laughs> yeah. I mean, we've seen we've seen in other countries, in other European countries, just centralized twenty four seven vaccine rollouts. And I think the the reason that Israel is worth bringing up is that Israel is making everyone else look bad everyone but it's also demonstrating what a competent government can do but yeah it's it's what a competent government can do and also what happens when you make that resolution you know what we're going to treat this as if this is a wartime experience we are at war and we're going to mobilize everything we're going to do everything everything else is going to be put aside this is the task ahead of us we have to go beyond everything that we would normally consider to be usual practice and we're going to do this and we're going to do this as quickly as we possibly can because it's and it's obviously a question of saving lives because the longer this goes on that means that people will die it means people will be infected with covid and will suffer from the the consequences of of uh, long covid and on top of that there's the question of the economy, the massive continuing ongoing damage done to the economy and the costs that are associated with that. That's the, I mean, I saw the EU talking recently about one of the advantages of their viral or their uh, vaccine acquisition program was that they'd managed to get it for such a low cost. And wasn't that fantastic? And the standard, the, the pandemic unemployment payment that has increased dramatically in the uh, since Christmas. There is now nearly 350,000 people claiming it, which is an incredible amount. It is costing us over 100 million euro a week just on that. Yeah, 100 million, which would buy you, if you're buying the $5, the is the AstraZeneca's $5 and five, five quid. I've seen some as low as two on some of the price lists that uh, have leaked in Politico. Can you get that on Amazon? <laughs> I, I imagine that's for quite large bulk orders. You say that, Gary, but it's also true that it's being reported in some of the European papers that the, one of the reasons why we didn't go ahead, we, the European Commission, the, the procurement bureaucracy, didn't actually go ahead and buy more vaccines was because they didn't have the money. Politico reported that, that the European Commission didn't just didn't have the money to buy more vaccines. And I'd say if, if just that payment in Ireland, is costing 100 million, I think it's 102 million a week this week. Yeah. How much is that costing in Germany, in France, in Spain? Oh, mind-boggling. And how much money could the EU Commission have actually gotten if they went back and went, we'd like another 10 billion? I have a feeling they probably would have gotten it. 
we had a situation where okay let's go let's go and get the most expensive one and the one that was available and the one which everybody had had certainly knew by november that it was going to be approved that it had high levels of efficacy but it was expensive the pfizer vaccines coming in at what 25 25 quid a pop i know all of the payment deals on this by the way are, are private so the actual price is being paid for these things are unclear and they're also going to vary massively region by region so i've, I've seen massively virgent price lists on all of these things but the one that's going around the, the figure that's most commonly quoted is 25 two weeks of of payments would get would have bought us eight million doses of vaccine and i'd say that that if we had eight million and we committed to it that would have done that we would be if we had in stock in ireland today available for us over the next few months eight million doses i think we could be fairly happy and fairly relaxed about uh, supply of vaccine in this country but we don't and one of the facts is and it, it seems to me inescapable on the basis of what's come out in the last week or so from der spiegel and and then there's been more stuff coming out since then I mean, since the, the famous der spiegel article where it said that when we when it actually came to the moment in uh, november and Pfizer came back and said, listen, we, we have extra capacity. Would you like to fight 500 million? And they said, no, thanks awfully. Um, the, the fact is what we could have, we could have accessed that if we'd been left to it. The lack of a sufficient numbers of vaccines is an impediment across Europe. And we know that the Germans have been talking directly to Pfizer because it's a German company and been talking to BioNTech themselves privately to see if they can access. And to be fair, the Germans, the Dutch, the, the French and the, the Netherlands way back were very were unhappy with what was happening regarding vaccines and went ahead and bought 400 million vaccines off the run back. It has now been, it's now being reported on the foot of the Dutch Spiegel article that what happened was there was a lot of, they, the, the health ministers who had done this came under pressure from above, from the leaders in their various countries, that this should not be done on this kind of a basis, that it had to be done on a pan-European basis. And therefore, the procurement of vaccines was going to be transferred away from the national health services, and it was going to go to Europe. Now, we've all been schneering, enjoying a good old schneer at the English, have we not? And their mad situation and Boris Johnson and the terrible incompetence of the other. The UK has done a deal for 340 million doses, right? They have 100 million doses from AstraZeneca, which has been licensed in the UK, not yet licensed either in Europe or in the United States, although there are noises in Europe that it may be coming out. With uh, 30 million available before uh, September, another 30 million doses they got from Janssen, which is Johnson & Johnson. Now they are going to have their data in by the end of January, and they are looking at, hope they're hoping for emergency approval from the FDA in February. Now if they're getting a FDA approval, the chances in February, if that's what they, if they get, there's a very, very good chance they'll get, get that in Europe also. They got 30 million uh, doses from BioNTech and Pfizer. And then, well, then a little bit further down the line, 
they got 60 million from Novak, 60 million from Saf, uh, Salafi Pastor, which doesn't look like it's going to happen, and 60, 60 million doses from Valneva, which is uh, a Scottish company. Again, that's going to be the end of the year before that's soon. But just with AstraZeneca, uh, Pfizer, and Johnson Johnson, they're still up around 160 million doses, which they have got nailed on because they did it by themselves. And they had, they overbought, which is the normal thing because you don't know for certain at the time what is going, what's going to work, which is going to work best, what's going to come on most, on stream most quickly. We have this problem. Now, we are going to have problems with rollout, but the fundamental problem, Gary, surely is, as it stands, even if we were at the Israeli levels of efficiency, we wouldn't have the vaccines. No, I think we have we have three problems which compound themselves. We can source the vaccines, if we could source the vaccines, we don't actually have an effective distribution method. And there doesn't seem to be a lot of interest in actually trying to build one. And then even if we did that, and this is my personal view, and obviously people may disagree with this, by prioritizing frontline staff, we are not going to most effectively use those vaccines to drive down hospitalizations and deaths. Actually, on the uh, the pandemic unemployment payment, Michael, do you know what the the Irish unemployment rate is now? No. If you include the uh, the pandemic unemployment uh, payment, it's twenty one percent, or it was twenty one percent in November. God, it's like the good old days back when I was a child. It's gone up, and it's gone up substantially. And it's going to go up again now because the construction industry is going to be shut down. The construction industry is going to go down, and that is going to be pretty bad. So we know it's gone up. Now, to put that in perspective for people, particularly the older listeners, because this is now in the past, in the Irish recession, you say the depth of the recession was probably about 2012, Michael? Yeah, 11, 12, that kind of time, yeah. The unemployment rate there was about 14%, somewhere in that region, below 15% anyway. We are now above that. And if it was 21% in November, I'd be interested to see what it's now, because I wouldn't be surprised if it's managed to hit 24, 25%. Or what it's going to be by the end of January. And the assumption, of course, is that when this is finished, like a glorious V, the economy will rebound. The problem there is it's harder to start a business than it is to close a business. Oh, yeah. And that's actually part of why we did the project with Ismi that we're working on looking at the, the issues with small businesses. Because I have had a couple of people go to me and be like, I would have thought a, like a conservative kind of free market group, you wouldn't be in favor of state supports. I did have to make the argument that if your intent is to minimise the cost to the state of this, it actually makes a great deal of sense to put in place the policies and supports to keep these businesses going. Because if these all go to the wall, well, you're looking at a great deal of the state supporting everyone for quite a length of time. Sam Bowman, our, our friend in London, has been talking a lot about this. And I know Sam is a bit, a bit as a neoliberal sometimes not quite on the song sheet when it comes to prudence and sensible spending. But Sam ha said, and I think he's right, he said, anybody right now who's talking about worrying about borrowing levels in order to, to do something which could substantially accelerate an exit from this pandemic is not somebody you should be talking to. Because the, whatever we were to spend, if we, if, if we were aware, for example, that there was somewhere a cash of 10 million vaccines which if we got our checkbooks out and we went after it even in an act of gross lack of solidarity with the rest of europe i were to do that terrible thing whatever it costs well not whatever it costs but damn near whatever it costs 
would end up being cheap in comparison to what we're looking at. I mean, if, if, if we look, Gary, if we look at the present projected rollout, we're, we're, we're looking at next Christmas again. We're, we're going to be into another winter with this. When, we're, when you, we were talking to Izmi, but also other people, they're making the point that a lot of the small businesses, if they're going to go boom, they're going to start going boom in Q1, Q2, 2021. Yeah. If we see that, we could potentially see the cost of the pandemic unemployment payment going to, on a monthly basis, going to half a billion euro a month. That's a ridiculous. And, and that's not the only support that's in place due to COVID-19. There's tons of them. Gary, it doesn't take much to go to half a billion. We're on 100 million a month, 100 million a week as it is. Which is four hundred million a month. We're not fair off, but a twenty-five percent increase would still be bad. It would be, obviously, obviously, it would be bad. I mean, we're looking at a current. What's our current account deficit at the moment? For nineteen billion. Uh, well, we're expecting this year somewhere between nineteen and twenty point five. I think no one cares. No one cares what the deficit is this year. We have deviated so far from anything normal or anything contained within most economic theories. But the numbers don't matter, and the money isn't real. Whatever, just deal with it. It is an incredibly weird situation economically. There is, unfortunately, I don't know. It, 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 it may be the case that the mistakes that were made last year are simply mistakes that we are going to have to live with as regards a lack of uh, vaccine to roll out. That uh, some kind of bizarre, short-sighted, fucked-up bureaucracy made decisions and because we were good and we we accepted oh well that's what it is that's what it is rather than actually thinking well you know what that's not going to work for us maybe we should do this off our own bat it may be that there is nothing less hopefully hopefully all of these companies are going to find ways of increasing production getting more stuff out hopefully the AstraZeneca will be approved if it is safe, obviously. I mean, if it, if they genuinely believe it's not safe, then they shouldn't be approved. But if it is safe, it should be approved. Hopefully the Johnson & Johnson will come on. And they're talking about uh, uh, getting a, bit, a billion doses produced uh, this year. So hope that means that substantial numbers of production, say, in the first six months, of the year and then we can access those. That's also a single. Johnson & Johnson is unusual. It's a single dose. Uh, vaccines so that's positives as well and if we get really lucky michael nefit might actually approve the use of some other testing methods which will allow rapid testing you know if we get like really out there yeah they they seem to be very very against that then you know maybe we might actually be able to build some sort of uh tracing system because we don't have one at the minute this this test and trace sort of song and dance just nothing there it's like a dance of the seven veils, but at the end of it, there's no woman. There's just wind. No, I, 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 I not, again, not be, I don't think that. I think the testing and tracing is gone in Ireland. I don't expect it to return. I think that might have been the most esoteric reference I've ever made on the show. <laughs> oh God! No, all I can think of is the chief medical officer and the dance of the seven veils. Oh Jesus! You would want that's not that's not a, that's not what you want to see in your head before you go to bed of a night. So um, yeah, that's that's bad. We are obviously going into another lockdown. The construction industry is uh, is also shutting down. Apart from the social housing division, which I imagine is because it's like twelve men and a dog, and it's very easy to maintain social distancing. 
Well, also because that's a good thing. That is a good thing, yes, Michael. In the same way that schools were a good thing. Yeah, but until see, they weren't. But you see, schools aren't making profit, so that's not a bad thing. Whereas other people that were building houses were making money out of it. And that's a bad thing. But it's a good thing if people are making money doing the vaccine, because then they make more of it. Well, no, I think it's a bad thing if people are making money out of the vaccine, isn't it? Um, big pharma. In general, private medicine is bad and we should nationalise it, which is what I'm starting to hear from TDs again, because, you know, never let a good crisis go to waste. Uh, but the vaccine, everyone seems happy to just sort of go, well, you see, money is great because it means that we can spend months saying that there should be solidarity in the rollout of the vaccine. And, you know, it's about everyone coming together to defeat the vaccine in an equitable fashion. And then the second it becomes possible to buy the good vaccines, uh, clamber all over the third world to get as much as you can. So everyone seems happy to do that. That seems just good and proper. Well, different vaccine companies have different policies regarding that. I think AstraZeneca have committed that for the duration of the pandemic, they will be selling the vaccine at cost. I think they have become a non-profit for the duration of the uh, of this issue. Of course, you can make a lot of money as a non-profit. just means the profit isn't the reason. They were, because they were developing this uh, in conjunction with Oxford University, I think part of the deal for the university was that oh, this has to be available to people. Uh, Johnson & Johnson have also said that in the second half of the year, they're going to make 500 million doses available to third world countries. Um, I don't know if they're going to be free or, or, or at a discounted rate, but... Yes, that's that's another a big issue that you know we should we should make sure that the distribution of these things is equitable and fair, and it's not just all the rich fat cats. Do you remember that that wonderful summer we had, Michael, where the rates were so low and everyone was happy and gay, and we were going to use that time to build capacity and test and trace, and it was a great moment of positivity as the nation came together and did sweet fuck all about the problem. Uh. No, no, I don't remember that summer. I possibly I never I never had any doubts about building testing or tracing or adding IC units that that I was fairly fairly clear about my opinions on the likelihood of that happening. Now I was hopeful that uh, <laughs> that we wouldn't be looking at rates over increasing at a level of what 330 percent over two weeks it's it's hard it's hard to tell with the backlog what the actual numbers are yeah but i think we can say with a degree of confidence that they're not good they're not good although the icu and hospitalization numbers aren't as bad as i I thought they would be when i went to look at them the problem is and they're not increasing they're increasing faster than anyone would want but not exponentially the problem is if there's no clear end in sight and irish hospitals don't have great capacity anyway no i mean we, we discussed this in the, uh, in, a long time ago was if you look at the difference in icu capacity say between here and germany it's a chasm did you um did you see i i mentioned there about people talking about nationalizing the private hospitals have you seen the people starting to push again including some of the tds for uh, getting rid of private medicine and bring it all into the public sector which i think is now is just the perfect moment to start that fight because you will you will take people's medical insurance from their cold dead hands i don't when i hear this i genuinely i get a sick headache i think why why would you do this why would you say 
rather than have private medicine that people don't have to have, but you know, they can have private medicine which does actually take a certain amount of pressure off the public system and which works. Why would you take saying we can't have that? We're no, what we're going to do is we're going to give all of the medicine into the hands of the people that gave us the children's hospital. That's the, they're, they're the people that we want to manage the care of Ireland's sick. They're the people we want to manage all of this. Why would you do that? A line, I think, puts in context the state of Irish healthcare in, in relation to the vaccination, but in relation to everything else. It's from an Irish Times article that I will link below from Paul Cullen called Why is Ireland's COVID vaccination campaign off to such a slow start? And it's it's a fairly short read, actually. But the end section of it is titled, Who's the Boss? And contains this line. At this point, it is difficult to tell who is running the vaccine rollout program in Ireland. <laughs> it shouldn't be difficult to tell. But journalists who have asked the Department of Health about it are being redirected to the HSE. And journalists who are asking the HSE are being redirected to the Department of Health. We have a health system running a national vaccine program that we can't even tell who's running it. What's that phrase, Gary, where people say, that's not a glitch in the system, that's uh, something of the system, you know? This is like when it came out that the children's hospital had more than one board and they had areas of overlapping competency. Yeah. And you're like, so, oh, so no single person knows what's happening on this project. Fantastic. Glorious design. But the fact that people say that is the Department of Health or is the HSA, that is not, a, that's not a, a flaw in the system. That's a, that's a design element. The purpose of the HSC is so that the Minister for Health can stand up and say, well, we set up the HSC to take the politics out of health. And, you know, it's, that's nothing to do with me. That, that's the HSC. You have to yeah, you have to talk to the chief executive. You have to talk to the the board. That's nothing to do with me. It was always designed to 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 insulate, and that's what any of these things are always done. When you when people say, "Oh, it's going to be independent," what that actually means is, you, uh, it's not going to be my fault. Yeah, and it's been very effective at that. There's also the task force that drew up the implementation plan for the vaccine release, and that's still active. So maybe that's running it, but we don't know. And Paul Cullen is the editor. Is the health editor of the Irish Times. And whatever about general journalist competency, specialist editors tend to know about the area they're writing about. So <laughs> if one of the people most informed on the health service in Ireland can't fucking tell who's running the vaccine program, that indicates a bit of an issue. <laughs> I'm sorry, I just, I'm reminded of a line from Blackadder. I don't know if you ever watched it. The... Uh, great Captain Ron Atkinson show and it's in the second it's the first world war version and he's talking to this nurse and she says I really wanted to come out here I wanted to see how a war could be fought so badly and he inevitably says well you've come to the right place a war hasn't been won this badly since whatever and that's if you wanted to ever this was this this was planned Gary there was a, a group of people got together and planned this rollout yeah, I do, there's a principle, I don't know if I've ever discussed it on the show, I probably have, in organisations and in organisational psychology, and it's this. If you are involved in a project, and it is a clusterfuck, like, it is going to fail, but it's not going to fail because of any particular reason that you've done or that the team has done, it's going to fail because 
you've just picked the default way of doing it. It is no one's fault if it fails. Because that's a structural long-term issue that couldn't be avoided due to chronic underfunding or whatever. Whatever you want to pick. Like, pick whatever you want. If you suggest something and it fails, that's entirely your fault. And in certain organisations, if you pick something and it succeeds, that may also piss off people. And the civil service is very risk-averse. Particularly since the last time they tried to, tried to roll out an IT system in healthcare. That left, like, that's like a numb to these people. So... If the vaccine rollout is a disaster, but it's no one's fault that it's a disaster. But then it was never, it wasn't really a disaster. No, on a personal level, it's actually gone quite well. And for all the people say there are no consequences for failure in the civil service, there are. They're just internal consequences. You're not going to get sacked because that would set a terrible precedent that no one wants. You're just going to suddenly, for an inexplicable reason, find that your career stops. Don't really, you know, the upward momentum just ceases. You become slightly radioactive. So you have an incredibly risk-averse organization. You have a rollout that is going to be incredibly complex and built on a system which has a history of chronic problems that are not just due to funding because we've been throwing money at the thing. Like, I don't know. I don't even know what is comparable to the HSE in the scale of the whole that sucks in money. But there were chronic problems. They've now become acute problems, incredibly foreseeably, and you would need a very solid plan and a very fine way of implementing it to do that. And at every level you try to implement it, you would have other people who have the same situation of this is a new thing. If I push for it and it fails, I'm screwed. So yeah, so failure is oftentimes on an individual level. Grotesque failure is oftentimes the best thing for any one person. Well, (laughs) I don't, that's... Yeah, I, I, I mean, is that cynical? I don't know. No, that's not cynical. It's why you, it's why large companies put a lot of effort into the idea of the mission and things like that. You want motivating factors that unify people. Or if you don't have those, and it's not a vocation, and your primary interest is just it as a job, then just keep your head down. Particularly if there's no real benefit to getting it right, or even if getting it right would piss other people off. Because then they might be getting questioned about why they're not doing better. Much like Israel. Much like Israel. Yeah. yeah. You're doing too well. You're making everyone else look bad. Israel is creating political problems internally in other countries by showing that the rates Israel is achieving are doable. And if Israel can do that, not just in its cities, but in the re- you know, the regional areas of it where the infrastructure isn't great. That's not a massive country but outside of the areas where it has most of its advantages? Well, that's something that could be replicated in other countries. It won't be because a lot of this seems to go back to logistical ability and structure. You see, I, I, I'm sceptical to, to the degree that you can, you can put this down to logistical capacities and structure. I think it's will. I think it's fundamentally it's a, poli- a political will to do it. I think, it, no, no, you're absolutely right that it is will, but it's also a way of looking at things. And understanding the need for certain things to be done as emergency measures, not just at the top, but throughout organizations. And that organizations need to be willing to move with that to ensure success of it, because there are consequences to failure. And outside of Israel, I can't think of many Western countries that actually have a system built on that understanding anymore, because we're so divorced from it. And now you're seeing the consequences of it. Anyway, you want to talk about Orhi and blasphemy. Yeah, we did. But just just before we, we go, I just wanted to you know, quote, there's something from 
the British Medical Journal, which I, which I, I enjoyed, which uh, it addresses a number of questions regarding the United Kingdom and their purchase of vaccines. And one of the questions that occurs, what happens to the surplus doses? And the government has said that the EU, the, U, the UK was committed to supporting equitable and affordable access to COVID-19 vaccines around the world. It has knowledge that if they have more if more than two, one or two of the vaccines they've invested in succeeds, they may be left with an oversupply and they have every intention of contributing that supply into an initiative to supply poorer countries. Well, Gary, we're a poorer country. Um, why don't, you know, this is, as I said before, this is our nearest neighbour and our dearest friend. Wouldn't this be a good time to send a, a chap over to London and say, lads, if you do have some left over, you know, just if it happens, you know, if you come to a point where you think, you know, we're, we're doing okay and you'd like to help somebody out, would you put us on the list? Yeah, I know Ethiopia, Eritrea, fine, but, you know, you know famine, the famine and, and, and the black and tans and the auxiliaries and, and, and the Poynings Law, lads. Ah, come on, Poynings Law. Bit, bit of give back here. I mean, there is, there is the comment. I'm not sure if I, it was a joke. The Irish government is kind of like a colonial bureaucracy, but now the home country no longer picks up, so everyone just kind of potters around and hopes <laughs> to God that one day home country comes back and saves them from their own ineptitude before they you know, die in their own filth or something. Um, it's not really a joke, actually. It's more of a comment. But uh, I just, you know, at, at times like that, where you, you see that and you see this massive thing that could save Irish people's lives if they would you know, give it to us. I just thank God that we haven't spent four years just fucking with them. Yeah, that's great. I mean, it is, it is good to know that we haven't spent four years constantly making snarky, snipey, ill-advised comments where the Taoiseach or the, or the leader of the opposition has just been dissing them consistently for their stupidity and... Doing deals with them and then before they brought those deals to votes in the Commons, publicly stating that they'd achieved nothing and we'd screwed them. Stuff like that. Like, good we didn't spend four years doing that, because that's the sort of thing people might remember and, you know, hold to account at some point. Yeah, and say, yeah, lads, we'd love to give it to you, but, yeah, we have this commitment to Liechtenstein that we really feel we have to go through with. I mean, Liechtenstein is a lovely country and you can rent it. <laughs> you can actually rent Liechtenstein. Uh, RTE, Gary, RTE did a funny thing on New Year's Eve. It had a funny sketch involving uh, the arrest of God on a charges of a sexual assault. A young girl in the middle of Middle Eastern origin. Ah, the cutting humour of 1992. Yeah, no... I don't want a blasphemy law. I don't want any blasphemy laws in the statute book. I don't want hate speech laws. I, in fact, if we want to have a new law in, in this country, I would be one of those people signing up to a, to putting in a free, an, a, a strong free speech protection into the constitution rather than the other way around. But I think that the, the the story is is look if you look at the it, it's it's there are lots of aspects of it that i think rte has to reflect on and i think maybe the wider public first of all okay let's look at the, the comedy i mean my, my objection to the joke was i didn't think it was a very good joke and i think that's the, the that's the the acid test when you're going to do something which is controversial or offensive first question is is how funny is it how funny is it and you listen to any serious comedian and they all say the same thing if you the more extremely offensive the joke is the funnier it better be because once if people laugh really hard at something 
they find it very hard to come back and be seriously angry or offended at you because you they have laughed they've laughed hard at the joke now a number of people decided that the most effective way to be offended by the joke was to be offended because it was a joke about rape and that's not an unreasonable thing to do because rape is a horrific thing and you see people say can you ever make a joke about rape can it ever be that funny no lots of people have famously um Oh, God, what's the name of the comedian that was... Louis C.K. Louis C.K. actually does a, a, a part of his stand-up is about this. And the problem is that it is actually very funny. Now, why am I... I'm, I'm looking at this. One of the things that you're, we talk... Or people talk about in comedy today is Gary, your lawyers. Are you punching up or are you punching down? Now, you could say you're punching up. You're punching... You're, you're attacking God. And so you're, it's very much, you can't be punching up more than to attack God. Well, that's bullshit. This was not about God. This wasn't punching, this wasn't punching up. Because frankly, God, I'm sure, has very excellent sense of humour. But really, I can't imagine that God spends his New Year's Eve looking at RTE news. It was, this was punching down. This was punching down at people, Christians, and Christ, believing Christians. It was a New Year's Eve. It's the period of Christmas, which is about the birth to the Virgin Mary of the, the child Jesus, on the, as was observed for Catholics, on the, the vigil of the feast of the solemnity of Mary, the mother of God. So that's what the joke was about. It was about the incarnation and the Virgin Mary. Now, if you're, a, it was an attack on those people. It was an attack on people who believed that. Now, the only reason you would attack those people is because you believe them to be powerless. You believe them to be powerless and incapable of exacting any kind of retribution now what did we see we saw several hundreds of complaints come in and a rte apologize or 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 did they did you, you saw the apology gary or you know i'm sorry you felt that way yeah and unlike other circumstances where people have been offended by something that they've done a particular piece was left up on the player so it wasn't taken down it wasn't that they said well we've decided a lot of people say well you, if you're free speech you, you can't be interested in this this is utterly hypocritical. Uh, why you, you, you absolutely have to defend the right of comedians to make the jokes about this kind of thing, blah, blah, blah. Well, that's fine. But I think we need to contextualise this. First of all, this was done by a national broadcaster which is funded by a public subscription, a public tax. If, I, if you own a television in Ireland, you have to pay a licence fee, and that licence fee goes to this broadcaster. It was done... On, done as part of a pro programming when a lot of, well, in the context particularly of the time that we're in, a lot of people will have been at home rather than out or at parties, and they're watching this leading up to New Year's, to New Year's Eve and the countdown, the, the bells and all that nonsense. I hate this stuff. I never watch it. It's not my thing. But anyway, they knew who their audience was. They knew who was, it was profoundly inappropriate at least to put this thing on. It was offensive and it was gratuitously offensive. Now, just because you you can do something, and this is, I know, this people say, well, Charlie Hebdo and all that, but in this particular case, we're talking about Ireland, we're talking about the RTE. Just because you have the right to do something doesn't necessarily mean that you have to do it all the time or that you can't find another time or place or situation in which to make that joke. Well, I make the point that there is a difference between saying that someone should not have said something or that you didn't like that someone said something and that someone should be censored or punished or socially ostracized 
for saying something. Absolutely. I'm not saying that anybody should be prosecuted for this. I'm not saying that even they necessarily, I don't think the comedians should be censored for it. I, I think the people who are in charge of planning the programming, if nothing else, that they have, a, they have some kind of responsibility to their audience and whether or not this is the, the correct kind of programming you want to do for that. But, but let, okay, let's get to the bottom of the whole issue. Is it reasonable to, de- to demand that people pay a tax to own a television and then you use that tax to basically make shit of them? and not expect that there should be consequences. My take on it was more... I didn't find it was particularly funny, mostly because, as I said, it, it is the cutting-edge humour of 1992 to 1995. God, 1990, what, 1979? Life, Life of Brian, filmed, what, 79? Now, I think The Life of Brian is, to my taste, one of the funniest films I've ever seen. It is relentlessly satirical about all sorts of elements of religion, but it is tremendously funny. In my opinion, other people may find it horrible and offensive and all that. That's fine. We're allowed to have a difference of opinion. This was a hell of a long way. But my 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 major thought when I saw it, and I obviously did not see it live because I wouldn't watch RTE at all, actually, let alone a New Year's broadcast. Primary audience of RTE is generally older people. New Year's broadcast, more of a family affair. So older people and younger people. Just kind of, when I saw it, I wasn't offended. I didn't really care. But my immediate question was, why would you do this, though? Yeah. Because it seems like something that, to the audience who watch you and are most positively disposed towards you, they're the most likely to find it offensive. It doesn't seem to achieve anything. And you, it was done in such a way, it looked like they didn't realise that people would dislike it. And you sort of look at that and go, but that is incredibly incompetent of you. It's part of your job to judge the public mood. And multiple people would have had to sign off on this. And no one went, why are we doing this? But I would love to know what the actual motive was behind picking that skit and broadcasting it. Like, I can get the whole, we wanted to do something humorous. But why that one? And I I would generally be of the opinion, he probably didn't intend to offend anyone. Be of the opinion they probably didn't realise it would offend people. Which again is quite telling both of the people who make up RTE, but also how bad they are actually producing content for people. Well, it's almost worse, if that is the case, that they're so detached from that portion of their audience that they didn't, that they wouldn't realise that this was going to be offensive, and I would say even hurtful, rather than offensive, because I'm tired of people being offended, but they're actually hurtful to people that to, to, to do this. But this is not really germane to the big issue, I suppose. It's also about how bloody awful RTE is at doing comedy. I think that is the, the take from this. I, I think the the fact it was offensive and it didn't really fit with the programme is one thing. But I think that just sort of indicates how bad RTE is as an entity. Like, internally, whatever about the licence fee, it just doesn't seem like it's very good at actually determining what people like and producing content that appeals to people. I wonder if there's something just structurally to do with an evolution in personnel. Jonathan Haidt, in, in a different context, talks about the way the shape of the university changed in its in its diversity of, of experience and opinion, left to right. And he would say that the universities have historically always been left-leaning, but that 
in the period directly after the First World War, a lot of people in the American universities would have come out of the army and the GI Bill, gone into academia. So you would have had, an, they provided, what they call the greatest generation, provided a degree of political balance within the system. Then, after Vietnam, the greatest generation moves on, shall we say. The people who become radicalised Vietnam are increasingly in the in, in the, the, the academy. The academy starts to... To, to skew more leftward and then from the, the 90s on radically so that it becomes instead of being like 60 40 or indeed 25 75 which is a manageable thing you get to a point where it's 90 10 and in some disciplines 99 percent one percent i wonder ha, have we gone through an evolution in rte where you have groups of people sitting around the table where it if it had been 20 years ago there would have been somebody or 30 years ago certainly there would have been one or two people who said lads yeah, I know what you mean, but I don't think this is suitable for this for for this audience for this night. I, we can do it. We can find another slot for this. This is not. This is not. This is going to offend people. This people are going to find this just over the top. But now, because of the evolution of the of that process that happens within institutions of of replication and self selection, that at that table there are seven or eight people sitting around reading it and they're going, and they just culturally are detached. To the extent that they, they thought, Meh, yeah, that's okay. I'll give you a, a different scenario, Michael. RTE is made up of people who all have their, their different projects they want to do, the things they are passionate about. Maybe just none of them were this. And so you have a load of people involved who don't really care about it. And so someone suggests something and you just go, yeah, sure, okay, whatever, I don't care. And then it gets broadcast and suddenly it's a massive problem. I'm, I, I say massive problem, but RTE is one of those weird organisations that occasionally seems to care what the public think, despite the fact it is nearly totally insulated from public opinion on any important matter. We have seen a lot of brouhaha on, shall we say, on the right. I mean, there's been a constant, there's constant criticism of RTE and of the mainstream media from the right. And we are, to an extent, I suppose, we're guilty of that ourselves at times. This has fanned those flames of resentment and disgruntlement again. Where, do you th- are we, have we reached a time where the notion, irrespective almost of the politics of the thing, where the notion of a national broadcaster funded by uh, a television tax has reached the end of its useful life. I mean, I think Orshi reached the end of its useful life 20 years ago, if not more. The response, I imagine, from a lot of people would be, but we, we in a world where we are constantly bombarded by fake news, we need some kind of solid, safe, reliable organ where people can be informed of things and they can take, which they can go to, they can turn to with a reasonable degree of certainty. We know, for example, we know that in, in again and again we've seen surveys which shows that you, if you look at people who normally watch commercial television in the United Kingdom, those people, when something happens of grave importance, whether it's the, a war breaking out or a big political issue, that they will go to the BBC for their news. Rather than trust Channel 4 News or ITN or whatever, they go back to the BBC because that's where they feel safe. They feel that they can go, that, that's a place where they can go, and they can be told what the facts are. And that RTE fulfills that function here. Does it? <clears throat> I don't know. I mean, I would say... I mean, let's say if, if you get two sources of news side by side, and one is the Irish Times and one is RTE, what does RTE have that makes you trust it more than the Irish Times? And I would, in general, trust the Irish Times more because I trust the people involved in the production of the Irish Times 
to have more concern for editorial standards. I might not trust some of the opinions or some of the views that can be inserted into news pieces, but RTE is also perfectly happy to do that. I don't know. I would say that pro- I think prime time is still pretty decent. I think Sean O'Rourke, he's, who was gone now, was pretty good. I think that... Uh, uh, what's... I think... Um, What's the other guy there? But you can make you could equally make the argument that the fact that Orti is there and has a state mandated funding stream, but can also advertise, so it can also compete in that square with the other uh, the other media productions in that in that area, means that you will won't see something like that recreated on TV Tree. So TV Tree won't recreate primetime because it cannot compete because of Orti's business model in doing that kind of program. And also, RTE is an established brand in that market, and you'd have to compete with that, and it would be messy. But if RTE wasn't there, or if RTE was basically told, you go commercial, you fund this yourself, then you could argue that, in fact, there'd be more space for things like that to grow, and some of them might be great, some of them might not be great, but there would be a period of market innovation, whereas what RTE arguably does is stifle that, largely. Yeah, I think I think it's. I find it very hard to take seriously when they they go through their most highly paid personalities and say, "Oh well, that's what you have to pay these people." Or the BBC would take them. Yeah, yeah, or, yeah. The BBC, yeah, because that's happened. That's happened so often. The reality is, I think that actually they distort the market ridiculously when it comes to wages here, because they're paying far higher. We have a media market which is roughly the size of Greater Manchester. And I don't believe there's anybody in either independent television, radio, or the BBC in, in, in Greater Manchester who's getting the kind of money that people are being paid in RTE at the top level. The way I look at it is this. If you are involved with RTE, like Ryan Tuberty, Ryan Tuberty shows bring in a certain amount of revenue through advertising. Base their salary on that. That seems perfectly reasonable. If they bring in ridiculous money for a show, pay them ridiculous money because... They are a net positive to the organization. If they don't, then don't pay them a lot of money. And the thing with that, when they're like, oh, our top presenters need to be paid this to keep them from jumping ship. Most of their top people aren't terribly good. And even the ones that are terribly good, you simply go, well, okay, that just gives younger people a chance to come up. And some of them will be great. And you just churn until you get new top people and you keep that going. And some of them won't be related to people who work in RTE. And some of them will not be related to people who work in RTE, although are probably will be sleeping with people who are related to people in RTE, because let's not go crazy, Michael. Yeah, let's not throw the baby out completely with the bathwater. But I, I just, I, I don't think this is, I don't think this reveals anything deep about RTE, other than the fact they're bad at their job. Just to finish up, really, the, the, what the, the thing that slightly amused me and had me wondering about the whole brouhaha, because there was the rather, I thought, undignified sight of a lot of people on the right who were terribly, terribly exercised by free speech, <clears throat> and then in this case were looking for heads on, 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 on pikes. One thing that did occur to me, on the basis of the language that we saw in the proposed hate speech legislation, the fairly subjective nature of, shall we say, offence that might be given or perceived by individuals. I was wondering, in a few years down the line, when we had properly implemented full-scale hate speech legislation, I wonder what this... Skate sketch 
fall foul of that kind of legislation. With the wording, so we, we don't have wording of the bill, obviously. From what was put forward in the Justice Department's report on legislating for hate, hate crime and hate speech, I would say you could probably make a strong argument it would come in under um, some sort of uh, hate speech provision. Because, of course, Michael, as, as the, the report pointed out, judges should be given the ability to go through material which does not on the face of it seem to promote hatred in order to determine if there are themes underlying that work that could be construed as, you know, promoting hate or things of that nature. Now, we were told, of course, that people like comedians should be protected. However, there was no attempt to give any kind of concrete expression to how that might be done. Yeah, I, I have a feeling that when we went there, we did talk about that point that there were no cutouts for artistic or cultural or really anything. But you say there are no examples provided of how the cutouts could be provided, Michael. The report doesn't give a single example of any limitation or safeguard. It just says there should be these things and doesn't mention it again. There, there's not a single example or, or anything of use. There are examples of how to make the law much wider ranging, like reversing the burden of proof. Lots of that. Yeah, which is... Scary. It was it was what they were always going to want to do because the problem with the Incitement to Hatred Act is because it requires them to prove intent is very difficult to prosecute under. So they were always going to try and get away with removing intent, but removing intent entirely was, according to some of the submissions they received from the legal bodies, problematic. So instead, you simply reverse some of the burdens of proof, which would also likely be highly problematic, but who gives a shit? Not the Department of Justice. No, no, okay. Okay, listen, we'll uh, we'll draw we'll 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 draw the duvet over the the head of that sleeping child, and we shall. Jesus, that was dark. <coughs> yeah. I'm oh, sorry, duvet. I thought you said pillow. <laughs> no, duvet, duvet. Okay. Well. I, I eider down for older listeners. Anyway, we shall be back on what day? What, what day shall we be back, Gary? Friday. Friday. The eighth. Uh, We'll be back on the 8th, which is also the Feast of the but I can't remember what. Anyway, until then, I uh, well, it's I just wished a happy uh, Christmas again to all those who are celebrating Christmas and for those who are not. A happy little Christmas uh, to those who are celebrating little Christmas. Oh, yes, it's women's Christmas, isn't it? It is women's Christmas, indeed. Although, of course, even though tomorrow is a holy day of obligation, there will be no masses and communion will not be available to those who would like it because churches are too dangerous to go to. And on that note, I'd say goodbye, mind yourself, stay inside and wash your hands. All the best.